Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. One, two, tres, cuatro. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Koch. After becoming a punk rock icon for fronting Minor Threat, Ian MacKay took a left turn with Fugazi. The original idea of Fugazi was, I was just trying to make something that was going to be peculiar. This week, we dissect Fugazi's 1990 album, Repeater, a peculiar debut that sold more than a million copies. And we'll review Sturgill Simpson's new album, Sound and Fury. Plus, we'll hear what song got Emily Kemp of the band Dead hooked on Sonics. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we will review the fourth album from Sturgill Simpson, Sound and Fury. It's an album that he collaborated with a Japanese anime director to uh, put out a movie at the same time as this record. But first, a classic album dissection of Fugazi's 1990 album, Repeater. Now, some people may be saying, classic album, Fugazi, who? But for a generation or more of punk and post-punk and young independent musicians, this album is a holy grail. Take Guy Pichotto and Brendan Canty, guitarist and drummer of the proto-emo band Rites of Spring, a Motown superfan and bassist Joe Lally, and Discord Records founder and minor threat leader Ian Mackay, put them together as a band and you get Fugazi. It was a powerful combination that became a creative powerhouse for more than a decade and went on to sell millions of records. From an American point of view, I think no single artist did more to advance the cause shape the ethics or define the aesthetic of punk rock than Ian MacKay. Yeah, I would I would find that hard to argue with. I mean, first with Minor Threat. When the initial punk moment in New York peters out, the Ramones and the Talking Heads and mm-hmm. television. You know, where does this thing go next? Right. Along comes Minor Threat and that scene in Washington, D.C., Discord Records. It's an independent label. It's a lifestyle. It's an ethos. It's a sound. Minor Threat's at the heart of it. He's a superstar. What? And he's barely in his 20s. Right. And then it's over. Sometimes, you know, when you want a nice picture, you got to pull the shutter and... That's it, right? And uh, and Minor Threat can always be just that. You know, we we represent a really specific time. Yeah. And, you know, and those are the songs. That's it. There's nothing else. So it's all there. That's Ian McKay in a recent conversation we had with him about Repeater and about Fugazi's legacy. And we're going to hear parts of that conversation throughout the show. But when it came to Minor Threat calling it quits, um, he wasn't nostalgic at all. It seemed wise, and I think it's been proven by time, that mm-hmm. just didn't 
knock it on his head and let people go do what they wanted to do. Like we just didn't agree on which direction to go. And yeah. and, and it wasn't that anybody was going in the wrong direction necessarily. You know, it was an incredible moment. Uh, Washington, D.C. punk, like other regional scenes around the country, there was no built-in infrastructure to release these records. So you had to create your own. So Discord Records comes along because Ian Mackay and his friend at the time, Jeff Nelson, with whom he uh, formed a little punk band in the late 70s named the Teen Idols. That's I-D-L-E-S. Said, okay, how do we get this record out? Well, we'll have to create our own label, I guess. And they literally put this record out on their own. I mean, the band members themselves cut, folded, and glued the record packaging on that 7-inch that they put out uh, called Minor Disturbance in 1980. The band only released a few recordings, then broke up. Then, as you said, the band that everybody talks about, uh, Minor Threat, creating the sound called Hardcore. Jim, we should give our our listeners a a thumbnail. This was back to basics. Take out all melody, (laughs) take out all, uh, take out everything extraneous and play as fast and loud and hard as possible. It is the height of the Reagan era. We are angry about that. And there's this new culture of young kids who had not been there for the Sex Pistols, Ramones, CBGB, 76, 77. You know, we want a sound, and the sound is super aggressive. Mm -hmm. And uh, the dancing matches, slam dancing, the mosh pit. I'm going to hardcore matinees at CBGB on Saturday because it was all ages, Mm -hmm. right? And it was five bucks, and it was 20 bands, and it lasted an hour and a half. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All these these little cities outside of the major areas. I mean, New York and L.A. had their own scenes, but, you know, you you go to Washington, D.C., you go to Hoboken, you go to Chicago, you, you've got hardcore scenes in those cities. In Washington, D.C., you had Minor Threat, but you also had Bad Brains, who were a huge influence on the young Ian Mackay, and Youth Brigade, and Government Issue, and Scream. They had a scene. By 83, Mackay had felt that the scene had sort of played itself out, at least in his mind. You know, how, how do we go forward from this? In 1984, you know, people were trying to know what to do because in Washington at that point, yes, there was some issues in terms of like what was going on at the shows. There was some really moronic behavior. A lot of people we knew were saying like, I just want to be a part of this. There's so many like kids who just want to beat people up, or people were just sort of starting to flee the ship and. I think some of us thought, well, you know, we need to just respond by making something, you know, just do something. And then he happened to produce a band by the name of Rites of Spring that was was coming out with Geep Shoto and Brendan Canty, future members yeah. of what would be Fugazi. He produces that record, that debut record by Rites of Spring, and there's something different happening in that record that sort of separates it a little bit from that hardcore pack. There's more introspection in the lyrics. Melody is starting to return to the songwriting. 
So you're getting a different flavor of what punk could represent in the Washington, D.C. scene. People who care about the narrow slicing and dicing and labeling mm-hmm. of music cite Rites of Spring uh, and to some degree Fugazi as as uh, emo or screamo, uh, mm-hmm. not quite, you know, what would become emo sensitive boys with guitars <laughs> uh, pining about their lost loves. Uh, but there is this new consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, post-Reagan, nobody knows where the 90s are going. Uh, You know, it will turn out to be a very optimistic time. We'll have Bill Clinton and we'll have the tech boom beginning. And, you know, but there also are still all the problems that were there at the height of the Reagan era. And we're all confused and we don't know what's next. Mm -hmm. That to me is is lyrically, thematically, I hate that E word. I've seen Fugazi referred to as post-hardcore, you know, post yeah. You know, you put a post on it, and that means it, it's something different. But clearly, they were trying to innovate. There was, you know, part of the hardcore scene, it was problematic. It was homophobic. It, it could be uh, parts, of it. parts it, of it. It could be racist. Obviously, the bad brains are people of color. It could be bullying and thuggish and very non-inviting for women. Mm-hmm. Fugazi is spitting in the face of all that and embracing racial diversity, gender diversity, creating safe spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is turning its back at the point that Fugazi enters on a lot of what had become bad about hardcore or post-punk. Well, preserving what was good about it, which was essentially that do-it-yourself aesthetic. You know, we're going to put these records out ourselves. We don't need these major corporations to help us, which started to become an issue when Fugazi put out that debut album, Repeater, in April of 1990. Now, prior to that, they had put out a couple of EPs, self-titled and uh, Margin Walker in 1989, which got them noticed. This was the band built around Ian Mackay as well as uh, Brendan Canty and Guy Pichotto from Rites of Spring, and then the bassist was Joe Lally. And this is basically the, the core essence of that band for the next decade that made that debut album. I think, Jim, the key to Repeater, this debut album that came out in 1990 by Fugazi, was... The way Mackay was, he was initially the guy in that band. He was writing the songs, singing the vocals. He was, the band was basically, he's the biggest name in D.C. punk. Uh, And it's his band. Underground icon. Right. But but he puts his foot down. This is going to be a democracy. Right. This is for equal people. We told people, all the flyers, you can't put X minor threat on the flyer. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Or if you do, you have to put X minor threat, X righteous spring, X pitbull, which is Joe's band, you know, um... Or if you put my name and you had to put everybody else's name. The idea was to so that we could become a band and to grow to grow it that way. And that was really important. And Guy picked up the guitar around 1989-90 and started contributing to the music, not only as a vocalist, but as a songwriter and as a guitar player. We did the first show as a three-piece. Um, we had been trying to get Guy to come into the band, but he was really reticent because he didn't see a place for himself. So we kept saying, like, well, you could do anything you want. Like, the original idea of Fugazi, that it was sort of an open, we would just have different guest musicians all the time. Was, I was just trying to make something that was going to be peculiar. And mm-hmm. and uh, so we were trying to get Guy to do stuff. Our next couple of shows, he would roadie for us. And, you know, I said, just sing backups, do anything. So he started singing backups. 
he was in the crowd, then he was on the side of the stage, and then he starts to move, you know, he's singing backups and he's a lead, and it just continues to develop that way. I think that's when the Fugazi sound really took shape, and I think that's what's the essence of Repeater. All these songs were written with two guitars, mm. and that was starting in, in January of 89. And we just, as soon as he started playing guitar, it just was, and Brendan would just bring in these ideas, and, and with the two guitars, it just was like, I think everyone just suddenly felt like they were fully a part of the operation. Not that it was such a terrible thing just to do my songs, but literally that they were, we were all writing together. And when I listen to these songs, it's, it's funny because sometimes I wonder like, who wrote this, who wrote that? And I, I don't know. Like, I think maybe Brendan wrote this part or I wrote this part. I remember certain things about the songs, but it was really just the fact the four of us were playing music together, we were off to the races. Yeah. And this record really is a reflection of that particular, of that change in the scenery. We talked a lot in practice. That's the way we would practice. We would just sit in the basement at Discord House, and it's super intimate. We would just play and play and play and talk and talk and talk, and we could play for four hours and just keep working on things. I would still bring in these songs, but eventually, mm. everything was instrumental. We wrote instrumentals. We were an instrumental band, mm. who then iced it with some lyrics later on. I play guitar all the time, and I write music all the time, and I know what my songs are about, but I cannot put that into words. That's why I'm striking like the wires with the pick, right? Literally cannot put into words. Once a song is, I have a song sort of arranged, then I want to present it to other people, and I feel like, oh, you know what? For people to understand, to have a connection with the song, I need to add some kind of language to it that will indicate the sort of significance of the music to me, you know, and I mean, I stand behind every lyric. I don't, there's no question that like, it wasn't as if I was like, oh, here's some, you know, cool sounding things I'm going to sing on. No, they're actually, they're about things and, and I meant it and I mean it. We'll hear more from Ian McKay when we continue our classic album dissection of Fugazi's Repeater. After the break, we'll look at the record's lyrical themes and its lasting influence on music. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, and today we're doing a classic album dissection, digging into Fugazi's 1990 album, Repeater. Each of us want to highlight a song and talk about uh, what excited us musically in that tune, and then also thematically. 
Uh, but the music first, since we were just talking about that. I, I think you can't do better, Greg, to illustrate what was special about this band musically than to go to the title track. One, two, three, it is all four of them at different points stepping forward and leading the tune. You know, you talk about lead drums, there's lead bass, mm-hmm. the two guitars, the, the, they're, they're so sinuous and the way that they wrap around one another. There's no lead guitar, you know, one might be dominant at one point in the song, but it's as if they're trading off. It's a, it's a marathon, right? right? And they're passing the baton mm-hmm. back and forth. And I, as a drummer, I especially want to give a shout out to Brendan Canty. Listen to what he's doing on the drums throughout this song. They're super melodic. They're propelling the tune. It reminds me, you know, repeater is a nod in one way to Revolver. You know, they were taking the name from the Beatles' best album, in my opinion. The Beatles' album is Revolver, that we're going to be repeater, and then there's also the uh, notion of both being a gun, Mm -hmm. and that comes up in the lyrics later. But anyway, right before the Beatles put out Revolver, there's that wonderful song, Rain. which is one of the few examples, I think, in rock history of not indulgent drumming, but a drummer leading the song. Go back and listen to what Ringo Starr did in Rain. And I think Repeater, the song, the title track, is Canty doing the same thing with Fugazi. I love that. It's essentially one long drum roll, but it's never showy. And you know what? What I love is the way that song, Repeater, the title track, segues right into Brendan 1. Which they named after their drummer. It's like it's one, it's almost like a coda to that song, but they sort of let those songs bleed together. And it's perfect, and you're absolutely right. The way the band changed the hierarchy of what a typical punk band would be. You know, the guitar's up front, the voice is up front, and the, and the rhythm section kind of yeah. just driving it. Here, the rhythm section's taking a lead role. And you, you can definitely hear that in uh, that song, that Sieve Fisted Find. same kind of instance of the guitar playing this riff and then the bass and drums Joe Lally and Brendan Canty sort of swirling around it and creating this almost a melodic tone but also kind of a an orchestration that drives the song along and the guitars are almost there as a textural thing yeah you know I've seen people sort of look askance at the guitar playing where they're not really playing notes man but I think the way Guy Pichotto and Ian McKay looked at the guitars. We're as sound machines. Mm-hmm. We're not, you know, we're not playing blues chords here, man. We're doing 
something different here. It's a textural thing. It's a noisemaker. It's a, an accent mark. And they have these two genius musicians in the rhythm section. Yeah. Why not foreground that? Why not uh, give that space? And this space? has a long history throughout popular music. You know, we have Sly and Robbie in the reggae world doing that, where suddenly the dominant yeah. instrument in a mix is the snare drum. Yeah. It is a shift in perception. We have Public Enemy coming out at this time, making some of its greatest music. And we're beginning to question, in all interesting genres, you know, does bass and drums have to take a back seat ever to guitars? And what is melody? And can you have mm-hmm. melody coming from instruments that are supposed to be rhythmic and rhythm coming from instruments that are supposed to be melodic? And it's interesting because what you just said, Ian would tell people that reggae was a huge influence yeah. on the way the band sounded. And you would hear this influence more pronounced on future Fugazi records. It's not as apparent on repeater, but in the way the rhythm section is foregrounded is very much a part of that. It also harkens back to that Public Image Limited record, which mm-hmm. was very influenced, the Metal Box album specifically. Yeah. That's a dub reggae thing. Yeah. You know, all these Lee Scratch Perry remixes. Well, punk had changed everyone's worldview. And now it had fizzled out and what was going to happen next. So, you know, that term post-punk in that regard is like, well, you know, the punks never just listened to one thing. Mm -hmm. We always had this broad influence. Let's bring in other things. When we recently spoke with Ian Mackay, he confirmed the breadth of his influences, including some more mainstream rock and roll. You know, when I played in my Threat, it wasn't if, as if we only listened to a specific kind of music. Most people don't know this, but like when I played bass in the Teen Idols, which is the band before Minor Threat, you know, I was writing a lot of the lyrics, and I had ideas about how to sing that then in Minor Threat, when I became a singer, I could pursue. But what people probably don't realize is that what was in, had inspired me greatly, among other things, was Janis Joplin, you know. Or Joe Cocker, mm-hmm. you know, seeing those guys, because I was so obsessed with Woodstock and, and, you know, that late 60s stuff. I was, you know, in the early 70s stuff. That kind of a motive, like, that was something that really resonated with me. So it wasn't like I was only listening to, like, you know, what would be termed hardcore or whatever. We were always listening to all sorts of things. And I think when by the time Fugazi rolled around, it was such a wide palette like we had the four of us listen to so much different kinds of music which i think is for you know people who go in with a microscope it's pretty clear that like part of the reason the music is so strange sounding is it has so many different ingredients Let's talk about the themes on this album, because they really are striking. I had a conversation with my good buddy Jim Testa, who saw Fugazi like 10 times. He'd seen Minor Threat like 10 times, right? I never saw Fugazi. One thing he said is, you never will understand Fugazi if you didn't see them. And right, I was like, I don't know. The, the, the record struck me. But the other thing he said is, we weren't listening to the lyrics. And I'm like, wow, what do you mean? 
Minor Threat had been a bit strident, mm-hmm. right? We're preaching straight edge. We are preaching a lifestyle, uh, you know, DIY, do not stray. It was jabbing the finger in your chest and saying, right. you need to listen to this. Right, you know? right, right. Not, un- not unlike the way that Riot Girl eventually would mm-hmm. on the feminist tip. Fugazi inserts a more novelistic, writerly kind mm-hmm. of approach, I think. Instead of, uh, if you sell out to the man, you're evil, you should die, the song Merchandise, which is to me the one that always jumped out, with that notion, you are not what you own. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. It's making me question myself instead of Mackay, no matter how well-meaning, telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. It's making me pose questions. And, you know, I think that comes up again and again throughout the album, even when they're talking about specific things like a shooting or drug addiction in the tough streets of D.C. Yeah, consumerism, materialism, these are huge themes on this record. It's also about, you know, being under the thumb of the man, the bureaucracy self-perpetuating itself. You know, you hear that in a song like Blueprint where Guy is literally screaming, I'm not playing with you. And he's also telling his audience, never mind what's been selling, it's what you're buying. You have a choice in this matter. Yeah. You don't need this. They're telling you you need this, but you don't want it. Don't buy it, don't buy in. So it was a very powerful message to this audience, but like you said, a little more open-ended. Think for yourself, I think, was the big theme for the record, which I think yeah. was a shift in the way Minor Threat approached things, which yeah, as we said, will was tell a little you bit more declarative. Yeah. You know, it was the me- you know, it was the bullhorn at the at the rally. This is more about, okay, we're going to bring this noise, but we're leaving this openness here. And I think that's why those shows were so important. Because to me, Fugazi represented this idea of community. And as the shows got bigger and bigger, you kind of realized, hey, this community's getting bigger and bigger, too. There's more people who agree with me than I realized, you know, yeah, or, yeah. or are kind of thinking the same way as I am. And that was really important. Those shows were so cathartic. As good as the records are, I don't think anything equals being at a great Fugazi show. Well, you know, it started at the door, Greg. Uh, You know, famously, Fugazi tried to make every show a $5 cover. Some of them were $7, right? Right. They were all ages, right? So Mm -hmm. everyone is welcome. No one is excluded. And even at a point where, uh, you know, Repeater sells a million 
records where they could have done much bigger business. Right. They do not. They continue to operate on a DIY, and you would see it rewarded by lines around the block of mm-hmm. uh, people waiting to get in. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the shows were consistently uh, sold out in part because the ticket price was so low. They were making it accessible to all ages. They were making it accessible to the kid who didn't have a lot of money. But still, I was caught with my hand in the till. The result was they ended up having to play bigger and bigger venues, and as the records started to sell, as repeaters started to approach a half million sales, at a time when this kind of record was not selling because it wasn't commercial enough to make the the radio charts, they started to pay attention. And... Fugazi sort of dipped its toes in the waters. Okay, let's find out a little bit what this is about. They would work with a few promoters in cities and realize, you know what? We're losing money here. The overhead is so great on these shows uh, that we can't possibly play with this corporate structure. You are at a point where you couldn't play small shows in Chicago anymore. I remember this specifically. Right. And I think you actually got booked at the Aragon. I saw that show, the Aragon Ballroom, which is 5,000 capacity, which I think you nearly sold it out at whatever you charged that night, five bucks or something, seven. But the next time you came through town, you played a, a roller skating rink. We did have a low door price. We always tried to keep it like the famously $5, sometimes six, whatever it was. But the one way we can do that, the way that we were able to pull that off is that we played on percentages. We never worked for guarantees. Mm-hmm. So that's very unusual in rock and roll. Like, you know, a band says, we're just going to play for a percentage of the door, which means that first, all of the cost of the show will be covered, and then from the profit, we'll have a split with the promoter. So we're taking a risk. Um, as it happens at the Aragon Ballroom, the expenses were monumental. Well, thank you all for coming out. Uh, this is a beautiful building, don't you agree? Uh, it's a huge room. At that time, there was such a situation with crowd surfing that they had barricades had become necessary. And in the Aragon Ballroom, which had a huge floor, they had a T barricade, which right. means that the barricade went parallel to the stage and then down the middle of the room, perpendicular to the stage. If you do find it a necessity to go up on top of people, which I think is kind of boring anyway, but it would be really nice if the people around you would pass you backwards and not forward so these people who are stuck against a barricade don't get crushed. The problem with barricades, of course, is if you have a barricade, then you have to staff it with people because otherwise people will fall into the barricade. So now you have all the security staff. I was trying, as the person booking the show, I was trying to break down the cost. Like, can we get rid of that barricade? We couldn't. So we had to pay for the barricade. We had to pay for all the security guys. And then when I looked at the pictures of the barricade, I said, well, this looks so draconian. We need to <laughs> lighten the mood. And we ordered up a tank of helium. And I said, you got to put balloons on the barricade all the way around. Furthermore, uh, if these two balloons survive the show, you get a 10% rebate at the door. It was an absurdity, you know, like it was added another $100 to the proceedings. As it turns out, we, Fugazi, though we had 3,900 people there, we made less than the guy that drove the forklift that night. Thank you very much to everybody who worked on putting on the show and to you all for coming out and being so cool. Peace. See you next time. Bye-bye. And that was a real lesson for us to be even more mindful to not allow ourselves, not that anyone did anything wrong, but literally... The way we operated was to be efficient. So for the rest of their career, they essentially were this underground band. They were probably the biggest underground band, certainly in America at the time. 
So when we came back and we did the rainbow show with, with shellac and makeup, I think. Yeah. Um, and that was perfect. I could actually understand the cost, and I didn't have to buy any balloons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, punk is the free space, mm-hmm. like so where new ideas can be presented without profit being like calling all the shots. So that's really so it could be called blues or folk or hip hop or jazz or whatever. I call it punk rock because that's where I came in. Mm-hmm. For me, I don't understand if you want to be a part of that free space, like how can that be ensconced in an industry which is just purely about profit i just don't there's no way so for me it's always been an underground thing and i think it always will be i don't i don't see myself changing my tune anytime soon mm-hmm. you know i still book if i play a show i still book it now i still don't have a lawyer my buddy jim testa made the comparison he says you you know in order to understand fugazi you have to look at a band that was as much community as band and i'm thinking of the deadheads mm-hmm. and it's like oh that's a really interesting comparison right. right this is not just a band playing a show this is a community coming together right. and and it extends philosophically uh, again go to the, the lyrics of the song repeater you say i need a job i've got my own business right <laughs> yeah, and then also I think one of the things is why it ages well. Here in 1990 is Ian MacKay and the boys in Fugazi asking or saying, I had a name, but now I'm a number. Mm-hmm. This digital revolution is about to come down on us, and we are all going to be reduced to ones and zeros. And I think it ages brilliantly I, I think those, of that. those records age really well for that reason. I think also the diversity of the records. I think you're starting to see in Repeater that they are sort of branching out musically. They're four really talented musicians besides being getting the punk aesthetic exactly right you know the diy thing uh, right embodying that There's so many bands that have cited Fugazi as an influence, but I don't think any one of them sounds precisely like Fugazi. But I think they learned a lot from A, their business approach, and B, that sense of community, and and C, the fact that you could incorporate everything from reggae. They were they were fans of like the Obsessed, for example. Yeah. You know this this underground metal band. You know they're fans of reggae. You know Ian will tell you that. Early Ted Nugent was a big influence on him in his skateboarding I'm, I'm days, you know? That, yeah. And the crunch of those, some of those chords, you can hear it in them. We were very aware of what was happening in hip-hop. And the Public Enemy mm-hmm. record had come out, and it was such a game changer, for, like just sonically. I mean, hip hop period was, but that Bomb Squad was just so yeah. mm-hmm. incredible. The production ideas and the and the samples and the way the loops they were using, you know, like a song like Repeater, like we very much were thinking about those kind of sounds. Brennan and Gee, like their musical knowledge is so deep, and the things they would be pulling from, like we didn't all listen to the same music. We all listen to a wide array of music. So they were pulling from things that I never really studied. You know, like I was, you know, 
I was never a squiddy polity expert or something like that, you know, but they were. They knew all kinds of stuff. <laughs> So you would hear bands like uh, Nirvana, Refused, At the Drive-In, Deftones, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Yeah, I, you know, Rage Against the Machine, you know, Eddie Vedder was a huge fan, Al Jorgensen in Ministry worked with Ian McKay on a couple of offshoot projects from Ministry. Countless bands from many, many different genres uh, citing Fugazi as an influence, and that continues to this day, even though Fugazi has not made a record in now, what, 15 years? I think I'm much anticipated. High top the list for many people would be the band they'd love to see come back. Yeah, because all four of those guys are still making music in some way or another, and they didn't, they didn't really break up. They just stopped making music together, but they still apparently like each other, and who knows, maybe one day we will see them back together again. Well, they say they get together and practice. Uh, I've seen interviews where they mention that. Maybe that'll lead them out of the basement one day. Let's have them practice at the 930 Club in front of an oh, audience. You, they're welcome <laughs> to come do Sound Opinions. Yeah, right. That wraps up our classic album dissection of Repeater, but we want to hear from you. Was your life changed by a Fugazi show? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message with your story and why the album impacted you. Coming up, we'll review the new album from Sturgill Simpson and hear how a Cat Power song helped another musician on the road to sobriety. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a little bit of the track Sing Along from the fourth album by Sturgill Simpson. What an interesting story this, this gentleman has had, Greg. Mm-hmm. You know, he starts out introducing himself to the music world as the leader of Sunday Valley, a kind of energetic, country-ish roots rock band, but goes solo uh, when he's in his 30s. He grew up in Jackson, Kentucky, raised near Lexington, did time in the Navy, spent part of that time in Japan, and became, and this will be relevant in a moment, a big fan of anime. He's an ornery polecat, as they might say, (laughs) in Kentucky. Um, Now comes his fourth album, one he was not even sure he wanted to make. He really uh, has problems with elements of the star celebrity machine. He enjoys being home with his kids. He has a lot 
to complain about, and he calls this record the product of therapeutic indignation. Mm -hmm. Uh, The title, Sound and Fury, comes from Macbeth, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. I think uh, he is far from idiotic, but let's play a track. We'll come back and give our reviews. This is the song Make Art, Not Friends from Sturgill Simpson's new fourth album, Sound and Fury, on Sound Opinions. Looking out the window at a world on fire It's plain to see the end is near Seen our sights, tired of the lights So you can let me off right here This town's getting crowded That is Make Art Not Friends from the new Sturgill Simpson record, Sound and Fury, his fourth studio album, Jim, as a solo artist. And, you know, it's interesting because this guy was sort of billed as the new voice of Nashville country, and he was going to re-revolutionize the genre. I don't think they knew what they were getting into with how far Sturgill Simpson (laughs) was going to take the definition of country. I mean, I heard the words country adjacent recently attached to Sturgill Simpson. Outlaw country, as in Waylon Jennings, and that's somebody he admires, but that's only a tiny part of the story. You know, that outlaw country from the 70s, that progressive country sound in the 80s with people like Steve Earle, those are some reference points that have been used to to describe Sturgill Simpson, but he is off on a new uh, chase with this record. The liner notes are illuminating for people who still read those things. There's a little piece of advice near the end of those liner notes that basically says, F your speakers. Yes. Yeah, yes. And I mean, <laughs> y- y- you, will, you will think, uh, you play this through a great sound system, you're going to think uh, your system's defective because it is all about distortion, the sound of a guitar cranked up to extreme levels. The synthesizer that's on this, a lot of this music, as well, defining a lot of this music, it also cranked up and mm-hmm. sounds shrieking and the vocals through are the mixes. Awesome. And the vocals are way deep in the mix. The, one of the few vocals that actually stands out, one of the, one of the few uh, more low-key songs on this record, all said and done, uh, the lyrics do stand out a bit. Spent the last year going out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to know that, what he's singing about. You can hear it. Spent the last year Fallout after that last record it was such a huge success for him, A Sailor's Guide to Earth, the relentless touring after that, the time away from his family, um, all that pent-up emotion that he was feeling. I think he was mad at, at, at himself, at the industry, at the world. 
and spend some time away reflecting on, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not a human being anymore. I've become part of this machine, but, and but, I don't like it. Let me amplify that being mad at the world thing, because this is not a Drake record. Boo-hoo, no, no, for me, not it's at hard all. to be a celebrity winning Grammys, right? Yeah. This is about the state of the world today. Now, I have not seen the anime film, which is the whole length of the album, uh, directed by Junpei Mizuzaki yet, right? I mean, it, we're getting the music before that. I think the music stands 100% without the context of the film, but I gather uh, that it is about the corporate global hegemony yeah. trying to stamp out individuality and personality. This is a big F you to the, to the industry, I think, in a lot well, of ways. Well, to the industry, but also the state of the world today. Absolutely. We are all just cogs in and, the and Starbucks machine. I think he's questioning his whole, his whole idea of this as a career. And, yes. and, and it's coming through those yes. amplifiers. Loud he's wondering what difference he can make. Uh, what difference he can make is is he's hooked me. I've been listening to this album mm. on nonstop repeat. Now, you know, Greg, you are the bigger alt country and country in general fan of the two of us. I really like a lot of grit in my country. If it ain't got fuzzbox, feedback, <laughs> or analog synthesizer, this album is a masterpiece. This to me, evokes uh, Waylon Jennings or or Chris Christopherson, um, you know, uh, fronting ZZ Top yeah. and jamming with the Krautrock band Can yeah. at a roadhouse. To me, this is the most revolutionary album of anything adjacent to country since Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. It absolutely reminds me of the metal side of Neil Young and Crazy Horse, a Russ Never Sleeps side too, right? And it's, it's that, that good. It's that good, and I think it's uh, not only the album of Sturgill Simpson's career, but it's one of those records that if it's not showing up in everybody's top ten at the end of the year, I don't know what you're listening to. Those are our thoughts on Sound and Fury. Greg and I are both fans, obviously, but we want to hear from you. What do you think? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us your review. We have also started a Facebook group uh, to continue the discussions. Greg and I always think everybody's a critic. We just start the discussion. a little bit of On My Side by the band Dead. That's D-E-H-D. It's from the 2019 album Water. The Chicago trio is made up of Jason Bella, Eric McGrady, and Emily Kempf. Our producer Andrew Gill recently spoke with Kempf to find out how the song I Don't Blame You by Cat Power got her hooked on Sonics. My name's Emily Kempf, and I'm in a band called Dead, and if it wasn't for Cat Power's I Don't Blame You, I might not be the sober musician that I am today. When I was a teenager, I was a very wild child. Left home around age 17. A regular week for me looked like going to my last year of high school, 
then going to work, drinking on the job, going home, stealing my best friend's parents' car, driving 30 minutes away to the club, drinking all night, and then coming home, passing out at 4 a.m., and then waking up and going to school the next day. That was like a whole year of my life. And during this time, I was listening to Cab Power, and Cab Power is super sad music. When I was 21, I attempted to sober up and felt like I was the only young person in the world trying to be sober. At that point, I had no idea what it was like to be sober, and I didn't know any sober people. So in my concept of being sober was like, I don't know, like sitting in a room alone, doing nothing, and then like going to work. I had been an artist my whole life and thought like, I, I can't make art, I can't, like everything was over essentially, but I was so desperate to not be miserable anymore that it was worth it for me as long as I could be sober. But it never made sense to them anyway. Could you imagine when they turned their backs, they were only scratching their heads? It wasn't until a little bit into my first year of sobriety that like art came back, I started drawing again, and I was listening to a bunch of sad music. One of the things was Cat Power, and I discovered that she was also trying to get sober. It was like this miracle, like, oh my God, this person that I'm obsessed with who makes this beautiful music that I cried to is also doing what I'm doing, and maybe my life isn't gonna be this veil of tears and boringness. I Don't Blame You was this like snapshot into this world that I couldn't fathom being a part of, this like rock and roll, this like romantic, really wild, really emotional and cool world um, that she was a part of. Last time I saw you, you were on stage. Your hair was wild, your eyes were bright, and you were in a rage. You were swinging your guitar My first sober job was this art supply store. And there was a person there named Brian who became my friend. I had been writing these words and I thought, this kind of is like maybe a song or something. And I brought it to him to be like, hey Brian, my only musician friend, will you tell me if this is a lyric? Because I just had no idea. And I was like, I'm thinking of like selling these to Britney Spears. Like, and he laughed at me and said, you should just sing your own songs. And I was like, what? It had never occurred to me to do something like that. And then I ended up playing with his band. I remember being backstage and we came out in a procession and then we got to the microphone and I was like high on adrenaline. Just like, I'm gonna die, my heart's gonna explode. I'm so scared right now. I don't wanna do this. And yet I can't stop walking forward. And then at some point during the set, it was like the heavens parted and a light came down. It was like, this is what you're gonna do for the rest of your life. And I was like, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. And then from that point on, I like, I started a band almost immediately and then I started touring within the year and I've been doing it for over a decade now. Tying it back to Cat Power, that song was like a small spotlight into not only a sober life that I was about to have unfold, but also this like rock and roll lifestyle 
that I immortalized as something totally unattainable, but then found myself becoming the very thing that I had admired about her and that song particularly. Yeah. What a sad trick you thought that you had to play. That's Emily Kempf of Dead talking about Cat Power's I Don't Blame You. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to discuss our favorite family bands. For more sound opinions, you can listen to our podcast, Thingy, wherever you find such. The show is produced by Brendan Banasak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. This is Luciano from Brooklyn, New York. I'm calling regarding the show on great bass players, uh, but also on great cameos, because I have one that I think uh, deserves to be mentioned in both. I'm talking about Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I think he's uh, very unconventional and uh, defines the sound of the band. He's not really a flea, he's more like a beast. Uh, one of my favorite performances is in the song You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. I think that a lot of the aggressiveness and anger and power of, of that song, which uh, was iconic of uh, the album and also of the influence of the album uh, later on, comes from Please uh, Bass uh, line. Did you forget about me, Mr. Duplicity? I hate to forget. Love the show, and please keep doing Bye-bye. It's Brian from Beverly Hills, Michigan. Listen to the song about bass players, and I'm going to start at the top. Uh, the White Album, Mr. McCartney. I was deciding between Everybody's Got Something to Hide and Your Blues, and I'm going to go with Your Blues, because that song does not exist without Paul's bass work on it, which is just phenomenal. I go right to the top. Thanks for the show. Really enjoy it. Well, hello, Jim and Greg. Calling you from the New Jersey Turnpike. You know, I was listening to your show about bass players. 
on my way to actually play bass with Malcolm Mooney, the former singer and co-founder of the band Can. We were playing a gig together in uh, Brooklyn. And, and, you know, I was really enjoying it, but I realized that somebody that you left off in your show, I think is really critical to the history of rock bass playing, and that is Can's former bass player and Malcolm's former bandmate, the late Holger Chukai. Holger contributed so much to psychedelic and rock bass playing by, especially by playing very high up on the neck in a way that really nobody was doing at all. And, and, and really in a, just a very peculiar and bizarre way and creating a sound like on songs such as Sing Swan Song from the era with uh, Damo Suzuki, the second singer in particular, or You Do Right with Malcolm. And I think Holger's contribution uh, as a bass player is completely unique and was totally overlooked. Hi there, this is Luke. I'm calling from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And uh, I just listened to your review show and I wanted to... Uh, compliment you guys on how you've evolved as uh, as the show's gone on. I've listened for many years and I enjoy the increased sensitivity and respect that you show to the artists that you discuss um, instead of stamping approval or disapproval on their work. You have more of a thoughtful conversation about it and uh, I think that's a great evolution. All right, thanks a lot. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.